Welcome to another episode of The Voice of Love, Mystic Poetry for the Yearning Soul. This is episode two, The Placeless Beyond There. When we think of a place, we think of a destination, somewhere to escape to, to aspire towards. But how often do we lose ourselves in the place we are in now, the one underneath our very nose? Because for all the traveling we do in this world, including the spiritual journey we travel, there is a place that is always beyond our reach. It's beyond our senses and imagination, because it's right here, the place we've always ignored and forgotten. This is the inspiration for this episode's title. And the poems we will read and interpret today hit on this theme of being placeless. We will meet two Sufi masters who inspired one of the greatest Sufi masters, Rumi. And hopefully by the end of this episode, you'll find yourself in a state of being that has no place or time, a state that you can continue revisiting to embrace the peace and love inside you. We start our journey by visiting a land that has captured our attention for the past two decades, Afghanistan. Today it is a symbol of endless conflict and turmoil, a place where empires go to become ruined. But eight centuries ago, it was part of a vast and thriving Persian Empire, home to some of the world's greatest poets, scholars, and philosophers. We turn our attention first to the city of Ghazni, home to our first poet, Hakim Abul Majdud ibn Adam Sanoi Ghaznavi, more commonly known as Sanoi. Sanoi was originally a royal poet, writing poems in the praise of the Sultan of Ghazni, which was an important center of Persian literature in the early 11th century. There's a wonderful story about how Sanoi left his ordinary life to pursue his spiritual journey, and it goes something like this. 
One day, the sultan of that time, Bahram Shah, decided to invade and conquer neighboring India. Sanai, as the official royal poet, was summoned to join the sultan to extol his virtues and conquests. But as he was heading toward the court, he came across a walled garden that was home to a notorious drunk named Lai Khur. And as he was passing, Sanai heard Lai Khur raise a toast to the blindness of Bahram Shah for trying to invade India in a pointless expedition when there was so much beauty in Ghazni. This forced the poet to stop in his tracks, and not a moment later did Lai Khur raise another toast, this time to the blindness of the famous Sanoi, who, with all his poetic and intellectual talents, couldn't see how meaningless his life was praising a blind and greedy sultan. According to Lai Khur, Sanoi failed to see what God created him for, and that on the day of reckoning, all that he would ever be able to present to God are praises of kings and princes, nothing more. These words shook Sanoi to his core, and he abandoned the life of a royal poet in favor of journeying on the Sufi path. He moved to Merv in modern-day Turkmenistan to pursue a life of spiritual perfection before returning to Ghazni years later, living in retirement. Toward the end of his life, Sanoi went on a pilgrimage to Mecca, and when he returned, he composed his magnum opus, Adiqat al-Aqiqah, or the Walled Garden of Truth passing away soon after it was completed. The title of his masterpiece has a double meaning, as the Farsi word Bagh means both garden and paradise, but also because it is from within a walled garden that he heard such devastating words that caused them to transform his life. The walled garden of truth is believed to be the first Persian mystical epic poem in Sufism, and is said to have left a lasting mark on other notable Sufi teachers and poets that followed, including Atar and Rumi. Rumi especially acknowledged Sanoi and Atar as having a tremendous influence on his life and poetry, stating, Atar was the soul and Sanoi its two eyes. We came from their path. Many of Sanoi's teachings revolved around awakening and removing the worldly obstacles such as lust, greed, and emotional excitement that prevented one from achieving divine knowledge and experiencing the ultimate aq, or truth. Similar to Hafiz after him, whom we met in episode 1, he criticized the formalities of religion and emphasized experiencing divine love firsthand as opposed to merely and blindly 
following faith-based rituals without any true sincerity or understanding at all. On this episode, we'll be enjoying one of his more popular poems, There Is No Place for Place. There is no place for place. How can a place house the maker of all space? Or the vast sky enclose the maker of heaven? He told me, I am a homeless treasure. The world was made to give you a place to stand and see me. Tell me, if the one you seek is placeless, why put your shoes on? The real road is found by polishing. Polishing the mirror of your heart. I think of this poem a lot on my spiritual journey. No matter how far I think I have traveled, this poem reminds me that I still need to travel down the real road and continue polishing my mirror, so that the only reflection that matters, the beloved, may actually show. Broken into three parts or stages of the spiritual journey, the poem's first part tells us of someone who has been traveling on their quest for some time, only to eventually make a profound realization. There is no place. Place is simply a concept in our minds, not actual reality. It is a form of perception we use to navigate this material world and human life but close your eyes and what do you actually see? Where are you truly? Every place that you think you are in is only a name, only a description or label that others have defined and generations thereafter have unquestioningly accepted. These labels have divided the world, the universe, into infinite locations, but ultimately, there is no such location. Therefore, Sanoi asks the profound questions. How can a place house the maker of all space? Or the vast sky enclose the maker of heaven? The maker of all space and of heaven is everywhere and nowhere all at once. And if we, at our deepest level, are reflections of the Maker, then aren't we also everywhere and nowhere? A single place cannot capture, contain, or describe our essence. If we identify ourselves not by the limited confines of our material body, but rather by the most basic component of our existence, our breath, is our breath really different from someone else's? 
Or is it true that our breath is everywhere and in everyone? One of Sanoi's famous admirers, Rumi, understood very well that we are not our bodies. He said in his famous poem, Lose Yourself, Escape from this earthly form, for this body is a chain and you are its prisoner. Smash through the prison wall and walk outside with the kings and princess. We grow up seeing the world as rays of different colors, or individual people and personalities, and not as the one prism or source that gives birth to all those colors. But if we go back to our source, we'll see that we are no different from it, and that like it, we can't be contained by imperfect concepts like a sense of place. In fact, it's possible that the heaven mentioned here is not a real place after all, but rather a state of being. A level one reaches when they have let go entirely of this material world, filled with personal desires and unconscious selfishness. The vast sky can be both literal and figurative. In the former, its meaning is clear. How can the sky cover source, who is not only the sky, but also everything else, such as the space around it? But there could also be a more esoteric meaning here, with the vast sky representing our vast intellect that continues to flourish as we age before eventually peaking and then declining. Seen in this light, the question then becomes, how can reason or thought ever behold source? Sources beyond thought and reason. After having contemplated these two questions in the first stanza, the seeker has now earned the presence of source, has now earned the honor of hearing directly from the wisdom of God. It is here that we move to the second stage of the journey and the second stanza of the poem, where Sanoi is in direct conversation with God. He told me, I am a homeless treasure. The world was made to give you a place to stand and see me. I love the use of the word homeless here. Typically, we think of being homeless as a bad thing, as something to pity. We all love the comforts of being in our own home and to not have a home, to not have a place where we feel we belong, is sometimes perceived as the most depressing feeling ever. But as comforting as having a home can be, it can also limit our spiritual growth. It creates a divide between what is comfortable, our home, and what is not, the outside world. In other words, duality is created when there is only one. But as the seeker learns the one cannot have a single home because it lives everywhere, it both has a home and doesn't have a home, 
both are one and the same. Yet when juxtaposed with the word treasure, homeless takes on an even richer meaning. Being homeless in this context doesn't mean that source has no place where it belongs. On the contrary, it means that source is so at peace everywhere, so much so that everywhere is a home, a place where it belongs. Source can live in your heart and in my heart, two very different places on the surface, and still be equally at home in both places, because both places are actually one. This is the meaning of being a homeless treasure. You are so at peace everywhere you are and with everyone you're with that everywhere you go, home will be waiting for you. This world and life itself did not need to be created. It was only created to help us see the uniformity in the duality. In other words, it's hard for us to see the one without first seeing the many. It's hard for us to see the light without first seeing the dark. Our intellect needs contrast in order to perceive and make sense of things. And it's no surprise why we always unconsciously divide the world into two buckets, the things we like and the things we don't like. But after seeing the multiplicity of the world, we then start to see patterns and interconnectedness. The breath is a common denominator, but there are countless other examples of these patterns. Think about the seasons, for example. We see them not only in the physical world, but also in our own lifespan as well. From the spring of our birth to the winter of our death. The more we pay attention to the world around us, the more we see that everything is, in fact, just one. Once we see the oneness and uniformity in the world, we then are presented with a dilemma. If there really are no places in our life, how do we become closer with God? How do we reunite with Source if there is no physical journey that we must travel? These questions take us to the third and final stanza of the poem, where everything finally becomes clear. Tell me, if the one you seek is placeless, why put your shoes on? The real road is found by polishing polishing the mirror of your heart. The real road has been inside us this whole time, in our heart. There is no place we need to go, no journey we need to travel to arrive at this heaven. We must simply polish the mirror of our heart. Our mirrors are dusty. In other words, they are so full of self. 
and so it's hard to see our true reflection. We have fallen in love so much with our egos, our false self, that we have forgotten our true essence. Therefore, we need to constantly polish that mirror. We need to constantly work on ourselves, our thoughts, our habits. We need to change our old ways of thinking and start being more. We need to be so free of advancing our individual needs that all we think of is the beloved and how we can offer gifts of selfless love on its behalf. In the words of Rumi, your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. Ultimately, the image you seek is already there in the mirror. You just have to polish it. I used to think becoming enlightened meant having to physically journey on some sort of noble quest that involved extensive reading, meditation, pilgrimage, and visiting holy sites and places of worship. And while none of these things are bad and can often help you find the real road, sometimes we just need to follow Sanai's wise words. We now travel from 12th century sensual Persia to its northwestern reaches in the city of Naishapur. Back in episode 1, we met a prominent Sufi poet named Abu Sa'id Abu Khair, who lived in this ancient city located on the Silk Road and known for its pottery, carpets, and turquoise. On this episode, we meet another Sufi master and poet who called Naishapur their home and who greatly influenced countless Sufi poets after him. Born as Abu Hamid bin Abu Bakr Ibrahim, Atar was not just a Persian poet and Sufi, but also a hagiographer or someone who writes literary narratives about holy people and saints. Similar to many other poets during this era, not much is known about Atar, and much of his life has been reduced to myths and legends. What we do know, however, is that he was the son of a prosperous pharmacist and received a strong education in medicine Arabic, and Theosophy. He worked at his father's pharmacy, helping prepare essential oils and herbal remedies. And when his father passed away, he took over his shop, often writing poetry while attending to his clients. 
In fact, his pen name Atar means apothecary, pharmacist, or perfumer in Farsi. It is through his profession that he came into regular contact with people from all walks of life with their daily struggles, which is believed to have affected him deeply. One narrative tells of a fakir, or Muslim ascetic, visiting Atar's shop one day and marveling at the opulence of his store. The fakir's astonishment made Atar uncomfortable, and he ordered the beggar to leave immediately. The fakir, indignant, then pointed at his ragged cloak and said, I have no problem leaving with just this, but how are you planning to leave with all this? He said, pointing at the store. This experience moved Atar immensely, and he eventually left his pharmacy and traveled across the Asian continent, meeting with many Sufi scholars who influenced him greatly before returning back home. When he returned, he reopened his pharmacy and began contributing to Sufi thought, starting with a prose work called Tadkirat al-Awliyah, or the Memorial of the Saints. In which he compiled verses, sayings, and biographical accounts from previous Sufi poets and mystics, like Rabia and Ansur al-Halaj. Many of these saints would have simply been forgotten in history had it not been for Atar's work. When I hear his story, I'm reminded of a young Siddhartha who centuries before was also exposed to the suffering of the people around him before leaving the comfy palace life to become an ascetic and eventually return years later enlightened as the Buddha. Atar wrote both short lyric poems as well as longer epic poems which contained highly symbolic stories conveying themes of enlightenment, oneness, union, separation, and divine love. His most famous work is Mantik Tair, or The Conference of the Birds, which is an epic spiritual poem containing thousands of verses that narrate the story of birds, personifying humans, who with the guidance of the hoopoe bird, 
or their spiritual master, go on a quest in search of the legendary Seymour bird, or God. They travel through seven valleys, or stages in their spiritual journey, overcoming many personal obstacles along the way. Of the 200 birds that start the journey, only 30 end up successfully annihilating their ego to reach the home of the Simoro. But when they arrive, they learn that the Simoro is unfortunately not there, and that they, in fact, are the Simoro themselves. Atar cleverly used wordplay to employ a double meaning, with the word si meaning 30 and mor meaning bird in Farsi. All of which ultimately demonstrate the divine within each and every one of us. Many of Atar's teachings can be simplified to express that the soul waiting for release from its bodily prison and reunion with Source in the afterlife can actually experience this reunion in this present life through journeying inward and purifying their heart. He is said to have died a violent but memorable death, with the legend stating that when the Mongols invaded Naishapur in 1221, Atar was taken prisoner by a Mongol. When someone tried to ransom him with a thousand pieces of silver, Atar advised the Mongol not to sell him at that price. The Mongol got excited thinking he could earn even more money Later, another person came offering just a sack of straw in exchange for Atar. The mystic told the Mongol to sell him for that price, for that it was all he was worth. Angered by this, the Mongol then beheaded Atar. The story itself is hard to verify, but it illustrates an important point. The body and individual self, or ego, is of little worth. What should be prized, and is priceless, is the divinity inside us, which can never be killed or destroyed. Though not relatively famous in his own time, Atar's popularity grew over the centuries, and he is said to have made an indelible impression on a young Rumi. Some sources say that the young boy, born when Atar was well in his 60s, actually met the elder mystic on his way to Konya, Turkey with his family. 
perhaps seeing the spiritual potential in him during this exchange, Atar gave Rumi one of his famous books, the Asrar Nama, or Book of Secrets, which is said to have significantly shaped Rumi's own life philosophy and poetry. But on this episode, we'll focus on one of Atar's lesser-known poems, but one that is still rich with meaning. Here is Invocation. We are busy with the luxury of things. Their number and multiple faces bring. To us confusion we call knowledge, say. God created the world, pinned night to day. Made mountains to weigh it down, seas. To wash its face, living creatures with pleas. The ancestors of prayers seeking a place. In this mystery that floats in endless space. God set the earth on the back of a bull. The bull on a fish dancing on a spool. Of silver light so fine it is like air. That in turn rests on nothing there. But nothing that nothing can share. All things are but masks at God's beck and call. They are symbols that instruct us that God is all. Though the title may seem to suggest that this is a prayer or supplication, Atar's invocation is more like a declaration, a statement of truth that reminds us to see past the self-inflated significance of our own lives in order to recognize the vast oneness connecting the entire universe. It shifts our perspective from thinking that we are at the center of the world to one that highlights the multiplicity of the world, and more importantly, how that multiplicity converges into the all-encompassing one. The poem starts out with a simple but brutally honest statement. We are busy with the luxury of things, their number and multiple faces bring. To us confusion we call knowledge. We are often preoccupied with things of this world, from the material to the immaterial. These innumerable things are fickle, they have multiple faces, and they exist everywhere, distracting us from contemplating the true nature of our existence and the oneness behind everything. 
The knowledge that Attar describes isn't just limited to the conventional definition of knowledge. Since the more knowledge one has, the more likely they are to have a better life, it can be understood that the use of the word knowledge in this poem refers to all things we pursue in the hopes of living a better life. But sometimes we think that something will enhance our life when in fact it brings greater misery and suffering instead. Sometimes we think that something will give us knowledge, but it only brings confusion. Take for a moment formal education, as symbolized by the coveted degree. It's one of many things we often become busy with and that distracts us from remembering our true essence. We often associate these pieces of paper with immense knowledge. And while they do impart some knowledge of the world onto us, one can argue that their main purpose is not to help us become wiser, calmer, and more compassionate human beings, but rather to help our individual selves attract better jobs and more money. There's nothing inherently wrong with these things, the degree, the job, or the money, but too often does our society teach us that these are the main prizes in life. That the more degrees we have and the more money we make, the more successful we are. And to make matters worse, it equates success with happiness, individual accomplishment with collective harmony and well-being. Virtually all who enter this educational system unconsciously pursue the coveted degree, but lose their real selves along the way. They become more confused as to their real identity, purpose, and nature, even though they attract more and more success. And for some, this can even lead to extreme anxiety, depression, and despair, as they one day wake up questioning the ultimate value of all this personal success. Atar knew this really well, given his background of having a strong education and successful pharmacy business. But while the mind and pockets were full, the soul was empty. Atar seemingly had it all, until the encounter with the Fakir left him floored and on toward the path of real knowledge. Through his own experience, Atar learned that our pursuit of these worldly things, whether physical or mental, don't really illuminate us or show us how to live a better, more enlightened 
life. The more we try to enhance our own image through the things of this world, the more blind we become to the ultimate truth that everything in the universe, especially our own mind, body, and soul, is all just a reflection of the One. We are all at Source's beck and call, and yet we don't realize it. And to expand our perception of this, Atad encourages us to put aside the false notion that only our individual and highly egoic lives are important. He encourages the shift from me to us, creating a more inclusive and holistic world. One that enables us to see the symbols or reflections of God everywhere. These symbols exist right in front of us if we only step away from our busy lives and minds to take notice. For example, listen carefully to the next few lines of the poem. God created the world, pinned night to day, made mountains to weigh it down, seas to wash its face, living creatures with pleas. When we identify with our limited egoic self, we are so small compared to the entire world, the mountains, the seas, and the internal dance between the sun, the moon, and every celestial object. Each of these miracles can produce immense joy and bliss for us if we only step back to reflect. Our life simply would not exist without any of these miracles. So why do we forget or disregard them so easily? The answer could be that our ego does not want us to remember them. Doing so would endanger its fragile existence and need to always be at the center of attention, often at the expense of others. The ego is not willing to let go of the individual so that it may melt with the collective. You can even say that the ego loves the world of duality, the world of multiplicity, seeing union with the beloved as the greatest threat to its survival. Because if we melt our individual identity and sense of self to become one with all, the ego no longer has anything to compare itself to. It no longer has anything to put down in order for it to be raised up. And so it naturally disintegrates and in its place arises a deep sense of calm and peace. Only by raising our consciousness by becoming more still and aware, can the secrets of the universe be revealed to us. And in turn, we recognize that our ego is not the end-all, be-all. Rather, clinging to this ego at all costs is what leads to deep personal suffering. Imagine though, what would happen 
if we let go of all we thought we were and embrace the truth that we are part of something much bigger. So big, in fact, it makes our world look minuscule. Because what Atar is showing us is that not only is our world small, but the world itself is small. While a mystery that can never be fully comprehended, Earth is nothing in relation to the endless space it floats in. Symbolically, this could be interpreted as meaning that our own ego-driven lives, or the world, is nothing compared to the cosmic consciousness, or the endless space, that we live in and are a part of. We are both in endless space and the endless space ourselves, as the soul has no physical or logical limits. No matter how big we think the world is, and more aptly, how big we think our world is, it simply is nothing when compared to the grand scheme of things. If we believe we are just the things we own, follow, and believe in, then we are very tiny and insignificant. But if we see ourselves as one with the universe, as one with God, the vastness of our soul begins to surface, and we become enraptured by an opening of the heart. We achieve a deep and lasting state of bliss that cannot be achieved through any other means but to melt the ego and become one with the beloved. In the end, we will always require certain things in order to live our life, whether that's a degree, money, job, or home. Life is not meant to free oneself from all the things in the universe. Rather, it's meant to free our attachment to these things. To free us from our desire to grab and hold on to these things in the hopes of feeling good about ourselves. Because after all, these things are just masks that inflate the ego and cause more separation between us and the Beloved. They are not true reality. Can you just imagine then, what would happen if we remove these masks?
Poetry is a language that has no time, place, or boundaries. Its air moves from one land to another, one voice to another, one pen to another, without ever losing its ability to inspire. It's no surprise then that, regardless if you read mystic poems from a different era or from today, your attention gets fixed on one thing and one thing only, the soul. All senses become numb, and you hear this soft and soothing voice speaking, the voice of your soul, the voice of love. And this next poem, like the two before it, is that voice calling you inward and carrying you away. I have always been a fan of rhyming poetry, and this poem was my very first attempt at crafting verse and rhyming couplets. Perhaps my love of rhyming stems from my deep affinity for mystic poetry from the medieval Sufi poets, who penned some of the most mellifluous poetry known to humanity, especially if you hear it in the original Farsi. Perhaps it stems from my enduring fascination with words and music, and the harmonic interplay between both. Whatever the case, the poem is more than just something that is pleasing to the ears. It is an expression of the living, breathing soul within. The essence we often forget in times of chaos, distraction, and suffering. And without further ado, here is Drink From Your Soul. Drink from your soul and feel the cardamom swirl inside you. Dancing in circles toward the moon with no intent of leaving soon. Upon your lips the burn will surely sting only to melt after and make your heart sing. How could something be so bitter and sweet? Such is the sacrifice and reward of this retreat. But don't waste your time chasing the steam that eludes you. Behold the creations, the creator that produced you. Travel beneath the clouds and submerge into this lake. Only there will you find yourself truly awake. 
a reflection, a smile is all you think you see. But your third eye sees more if you can just believe. For nothing can truly hold what you have in store. Not a cup, not an ocean, not anything more. So let the cup shatter, let the pieces spill around you. Only when you are broken can the one piece surround you. For just as leaves turn green after becoming red, you can only begin healing once you have bled. Listen closely and hear the bells ringing in the distance. It's time to let go of the pieces and leave this instance. Drink all you can, but know that it will never go away. Who you are inside, your essence, is always here to stay. As you can hear, this poem is full of symbols. Let's first start with the title. Drinking is a very common symbol in mystic poetry. In the medieval world especially, one encounters multiple references to drinking, becoming drunk, and interacting with the server or cupbearer who would pour these drinks. These references are almost always figurative and point to the consumption of an even deeper substance, divine love. In Sufi poetry, wine is often used to represent divine love, with the concept of being drunk representing the ecstasy one experiences when reunited with her beloved. Closely related to this is the fabled elixir of life, also known as the Philosopher's Stone, which is said to grant immortality to the one who drinks it. In alchemical terms, this could refer to a special substance that can transmute lead into gold. But in mystical terms, it can refer to transforming from one's lowest or false self, or the lead, into one's real self and source, the gold. But regardless of the actual liquid being consumed, the essence is almost always the same. You are taking something in. Something that you either did not have, or more accurately, did not know you have. 
So to drink from your soul means to drink from that part of you that you didn't even know you had. That garden or paradise that is your soul, which you have kept trapped and hidden underneath the ego's fog. With that context in mind, we can now ease into uncovering the wisdom within each of the poem's six stanzas, starting with the first one. Drink from your soul and feel the cardamom swirl inside you, dancing in circles toward the moon with no intent of leaving soon. We see here one's initial interaction with the drink, in this instance, a warm cup of tea or bold Turkish coffee, as hinted by the cardamom reference. The cardamom, in fact, is a symbol of the ecstatic bliss we experience when we drink from our soul, when we tap into that visceral part of us that escapes words or definition. This bliss, or love, takes over our entire body. It gives us goosebumps, makes us feel lighter, and raises our mood, energy, and level of peace. We feel a certain sense of aliveness, entering a state of being that's not encumbered by thoughts or worries. And just as the cardamom swirls around when poured into the cup, the love swirls inside us, dancing in circles toward the moon, which is an allusion to the Sufi practice of Samo. Samo is a form of meditation and dance practiced by Sufis and characterized by rolling in repetitive circles until the ego is destroyed and one rejoins source. It's an ancient practice popularized by the rolling dervishes of the Mevlavi order, which was founded by Rumi in the 13th century. In the process of Sama, one abandons their nafs or ego, becomes lost in the music, becomes one with God, and rolls in ecstasy, a symbol of the rolling motion of the planets orbiting around the sun. The dance itself is filled with symbolism. The practitioner's hat, for example, represents the ego's tombstone, while their wide white skirt represents the ego's veil. The practitioner, or Samozan, starts by removing their black cloak and thus being spiritually reborn to the ultimate truth. He or she then crosses their arms 
giving them the appearance of the number one, which signifies unity with God. Once the Samozan begins rolling, their arms begin to open, with the right hand pointing toward the sky, signifying God's love of humanity, and the left hand pointing toward the ground, establishing a connection with the earthly human body and its heavenly source. And in this peaceful yet alive state, the Samozan, in union with their beloved, embraces all of humanity with eternal love. In fact, you may have noticed that the cover art for this podcast is a Samozan practicing Samo. Of course, the Samozan has to eventually end the meditation. But when we return to the final line of the first stanza, we see that this love has no intention of leaving us. The dance may end, but the feeling can last for eternity. It is there for us to bask in for however long we wish, if we can only surrender to it and continually remove all the barriers that prevent us from melting completely into its arms. But as wonderful as this love is, it doesn't happen on its own. Just like anything, there is a price to nirvana. And that price is simple. It's ourself. It's that part of us, the ego, that we thought we have been all this time, but are really not. The question is though, are you willing to give yourself up? Listen closely to these lines and see if you can pick up the symbolism. Upon your lips the burn will surely sting, only to melt after and make your heart sing. How could something be so bitter and sweet? Such is the sacrifice and reward of this retreat. When we drink a hot cup of tea or coffee, we burn ourselves. The burn only lasts a brief moment, but it's enough to make us want to put the cup down and let it cool before we try again. In a spiritual sense, that burn represents the sacrifices we make to tap into our soul. It could be experiencing a feeling of intense loneliness, in which you feel that no one really understands you or the special journey you are on. It can be mind-numbing boredom, where you feel the world and everyone in it 
is passing by while you remain stuck or idle without any noticeable progression forward. Or perhaps it can be the confusion and fear of not knowing whether you will actually experience the peace and bliss you are looking for. Whatever the challenge is, the narrow path to awakening is only traveled by the select few who are brave and resilient enough to let go of everything, everything they thought they knew to experience true knowledge and wisdom. No one ever said that seeking spiritual awakening is easy. And this stanza certainly alludes to that by saying that the burn will surely sting. But then, after all these struggles, something miraculous happens. The burn melts, and you can finally taste the sweetness of the drink. You can taste the sweetness of bliss. In fact, without the burn, you wouldn't be able to taste the sweetness. The burn is the sweetness. Because the burn is not there to hurt you. It's there to heal you. You are burning away your old self, your old habits, your old ways of living and thinking. You are burning away your ego and all the games it plays to distract you from realizing your true essence. And this is what makes one's heart truly sing. As Rumi once said, the wound is the place where the light enters you. So while the sacrifice of this retreat is great, the reward is even greater. The seeker who submits to this bliss, who submits to this love, can finally heal instead of adding to all the pain and suffering they've accumulated their entire life. There is no need for defense mechanisms anymore, as there is nothing to defend against. We are not the fragile beings we think we are. We are ineffably bigger. Hafiz summed it up best when he said, I wish I could show you, when you are lonely or in darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. And so, the burn, the darkness, and everything else that we perceive as bad, it's not really bad. It's our ego that is telling us it's bad. But when we sacrifice our ego, we enter a new world, a sort of retreat where we can let our guards down and just be.
Once we get a taste of this love, we inevitably want more. We want more because some part of us recognizes that this has been our true identity and home all along. This brings us to the following lines of the poem. But don't waste your time chasing the steam that eludes you. Behold the creations, the creator that produced you. Travel beneath the clouds and submerge into this lake. Only there will you find yourself truly awake. As seen through Atar's poem, we spent our entire lives chasing steam. Chasing the superficial things that don't really enrich our lives or point us toward our real home. But one can't really catch steam. If we try to grasp it with our hands, it will only pass through. Thus, this line shows the futility of trying to fulfill our personal desires. Doing so only strengthens our ego and the inherent suffering it brings. Instead, we should be more aware of everything around us. If we spend more time getting out of our thoughts and instead carefully noticing all the creations, we will feel a deep sense of interconnectedness. There is no longer a me against the world mentality. Instead, it becomes a me and the world, or more aptly, my true essence is the world. By spending less time thinking about ourselves and more time noticing and contemplating the world around us, we become reminded of the creator who put all of this, including ourselves, together. Our hearts become a bit tender, and we feel a sense of joy, a sense of stillness where peace and wisdom can finally unfold. This is love. This is the bliss we've been seeking our entire life. And it's finally here, now that we are beholding the Beloved. There is no joy in just drinking the steam of our coffee. We yearn to drink the actual coffee itself. And to do so, we need to travel beneath the clouds or the steam to submerge into this lake or our drink, our soul. We need to travel beneath all that we thought we were, the clouds, to dive into this deep lake that is our true essence. That is the only way we will be truly awake. That is the only way we will ever experience real love and bliss. Often, our ego will make us doubt the possibility of such a life-changing experience. It will conjure up story after story, telling us how this state of being isn't real, that even if it is, we will never reach it, that we will lose everything if we try pursuing it, 
and so on. The ego is petrified that after years of us being under its control, we are now reclaiming our independence and returning to our true home under the love, safety and protection of the beloved. But if you can just listen to that quiet inner voice that is your soul, you can break free from the ego's grasp and smash through that prison you've kept yourself in. This is the spirit of the fourth stanza. A reflection, a smile is all you think you see. But your third eye sees more if you can just believe. For nothing can truly hold what you have in store. Not a cup, not an ocean, not anything more. When we stare into our cup, when we stare into this lake, we think we see only a reflection and nothing more. Our ego tells us that it's not worth our time to plunge into the depths of our being. But our soul, the third eye, sees so much more. It sees the entire universe inside us. It sees us as the infinite, all-loving and peaceful being that we truly are. And this profound realization shatters every mental concept we've ever known. Once we see the truth that we are the universe, that we are one with God, we learn that nothing can ever keep us trapped or hold us back. Not a cup, not an ocean, not anything more. Here and elsewhere in the poem, the cup containing our essence is the ego. It's the thing that is trying to contain define and limit us. But we are not the cup. We are what's inside it. And even if the cup shatters and the ego is destroyed, our essence still lives. In fact, that's the only way we'll realize it. The fifth stanza expands on and encourages this. So let the cup shatter, let the pieces spill around you. Only when you are broken can the one piece surround you. For just as leaves turn green after becoming red, you can only begin healing once you have bled. Once we move past the steam and clouds to see what's underneath the lake, there's only one way forward, 
to plunge inside. This is often the point in one's spiritual journey where fear and doubt can prevent complete self-annihilation. The ego pulls all the stops to make us drop what we're doing and return to its control, unconscious and un unaware. But if one is bold and determined enough to make that leap from identifying with self to identifying with love, the choice is clear. Pick up the cup and smash it to pieces, letting the pieces spill around you. The ego is destroyed and true liberation occurs. It's only then that the seeker is finally able to declare peace and bliss as their own. Only when you are broken can the one peace surround you. Break who you thought you were and embrace who you truly are. For breaking, just like burning, heals. The last two lines of this stanza illustrate this further by pointing to a very prominent but oft-forgotten example in nature. If we pay attention closely, we'll see that many trees, plants, and flowers, when growing, first have red leaves before those leaves turn green. That bold red color symbolizes the blood, pain, and struggle we must first endure before growing and becoming enlightened. As is true in all of life, if there is no pain, there is no gain. And finally, once we have finally experienced the effects of love, it's time to now bring that with us into our daily life. It's not enough to just simply feel good in a moment of escapism. This love is meant to pervade your entire life, from the most spiritual experiences to the most mundane. Read this final stanza a few times. Listen closely and hear the bells ringing in the distance. It's time to let go of the pieces and leave this instance. Drink all you can, but know that it will never go away. Who you are inside, your essence, is always here to stay. The bells ringing in the distance refer to all the roles and responsibilities 
we have in life that keep calling back to us. No matter how spiritually advanced or enlightened we become, we will always have responsibilities to fulfill, including contributing to our jobs, taking care of our families, making a home, and so on. But fear not. Just because one has to return from their communion with love to tend to their daily activities, that does not mean that love is no longer present or that we regress back to our former ego-dominated self. In fact, the opposite is true. The seeker who has seen, felt, and experienced the deepest love knows that it exists everywhere and can be summoned anytime. Even when the mortal body withers and dies, the true essence that you are never vanishes. This is the meaning of the final two lines. We can always drink from this cup, from this love, but it will never run out. Our essence is always here to stay. So I hope you enjoyed this in-depth interpretation of one of my favorite original poems. Hopefully, now that you have a greater understanding of the meaning, you'll enjoy the poem even more, and perhaps use it as a reference or reminder for whenever you feel like you are just the cup and not what's inside. This brings us to the end of episode two of The Voice of Love. Thank you all for listening and for allowing your heart to open to the wisdom and bliss that is inside you. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and to my YouTube channel to stay up to date on all the latest episodes. Also, don't forget to check out my website www.nikjimostaman.com for more poems, bios, commentaries, and episodes. But for now, best of luck letting go and finding a place in the placeless. For as always, I wish you the eternal peace and love that you already are.